I next met with Dr. Mikhail Sekris, and to begin, we discussed the major randomized trial in AML evaluating serafinib as part of upfront induction. So in Abstract 6, this was a plenary session at ASH, and I just have to emphasize what a big deal it is to be a plenary session. Really, the top six abstracts of the entire meeting out of thousands submitted are selected for this honor, so you always pay a little more attention when it's a plenary abstract that's being presented. This study was conducted between March of 2009 and October of 2011, and in it, 276 patients from 25 centers were enrolled onto this study in which they received induction chemotherapy. These are patients who had acute myeloid leukemia. Their induction therapy was pretty similar to what we give here in the U.S. with donorubicin and cytarabine followed by three cycles of high-dose cytarabine consolidation, the randomization occurred in whether or not, in addition to that, patients received serafinib. Serafinib is a multi-kinase inhibitor with activity against a lot of kinases. In particular, those that we focus on are patients who have FLT3 abnormalities. So in this study, patients received either placebo or serafinib in addition to the cytotoxic chemotherapy that they were receiving. So out of 276 patients who enrolled, 267 received treatment, 134 on the serafinib arm and 133 on the placebo arm. The incidence of FLT3 internal tandem duplications, and this is what you think will be the target of serafinib, was 17%. The CR rates across both arms were almost identical at 59% for the placebo arm versus 60% for those patients who received serafinib. The investigators followed these patients for 36 months. The median event-free survival was 9.2 months in the placebo arm and 20.5 months in the serafinib arm. This was a statistically significant difference. The three-year relapse-free survival was 38% for patients on the placebo arm and 56% for those patients who are on the serafinib arm. And again, this was a statistically significant difference. But everyone wanted to know about what happened to those patients who had those FLT3 abnormalities. There were 46 patients, and actually there was no difference in event-free survival for patients who received serafinib versus placebo. So a lot of us came out of this presentation thinking, well, you know, there seems to be an advantage for those patients who receive serafinib. We really didn't see overall survival data because the overall survival median hadn't been reached. It was reported as a three-year overall survival of 56% in the placebo arm and 63% in the serafinib arm. But what was interesting about this and what made it a plenary was that there appeared to be some kind of advantage in patients that wasn't specific to whether or not they had the FLT3 abnormality. Now, the money page in acute myeloid leukemia is always overall survival. And traditionally, we've always been able to get better results with more therapy earlier, but usually it's at the cost of some sort of toxicity that limits survival in that group. So when you look over the long term, the survival is usually the same between two groups. We'll see how the survival data in this mature It's an interesting signal for the addition of serafinib. I think we're all a little bit perplexed about why we didn't see more of a signal in those patients who had the FLT3 abnormality. How long was the serafinib given for? So the serafinib was given on days 10 to 19 of the induction and intensification regimens, and then it was given on day 8 of each consolidation until three days before the start of the next consolidation and as maintenance for 12 months after the end of consolidation. So this was both given upfront in the immediate post-remission setting and then in the maintenance setting. 
And in terms of side effects and toxicity that it added during the chemo and then afterwards as maintenance, you know, kind of what you might expect or anything, you know, worse than you might expect? It wasn't really much than you might expect. You know, and just as a side note, assessing adverse events in patients who are receiving intensive induction chemotherapy is mind-bogglingly difficult because by design, we're creating side effects. We're even creating a measurable amount of mortality associated with therapy. The most common AEs that were grade three or higher included fever, and of course they always are in these leukemia studies, infections, again, that's not a surprise, and bleeding events. The rates of fever, bleeding events, and hand-foot syndrome were significantly higher in the serafinib arm, but overall, if you looked at the overall incidence of AEs, there really was not much of a difference. And in terms of the effects that you're seeing at this point, how do they compare? You were talking about other interventions that have been done, but based on what you're seeing, would you expect there to be a survival benefit? Well, the answer is kinda. You'd at least expect to see some kind of signal that the relapse-free survival and the event-free survival was translating into a survival difference that's more than 7%, which was not statistically significantly different. And of course, if you enroll enough patients onto a study, eventually you would see a survival difference with just about anything. I would have hoped for a little bit more, and you wonder whether the serafinib may have just been putting off the inevitable, if it had that much activity at all. And so, of course, the question is, what's going on here? And you mentioned the fact that it's a little perplexing. Any theories? My real theory is that, you know, we've developed some targeted agents for steps in the pathogenesis of acute myeloid leukemia and other myeloid disorders like myeloid dysplastic syndromes. What we have to keep in mind, and this is some work that's come out of our labs, is that the median number of genomic abnormalities before you see the clinical manifestation of one of these diseases is somewhere between nine and 12. In other words, there are nine to 12 steps that occur genetically before we see the occurrence of myeloid dysplastic syndrome or acute myeloid leukemia, particularly in older adults. So when we target one of those steps, we're excited because we have something to focus on, but remember, we may just be targeting step five out of nine that may reset the clock a little, but not enough to see an overall survival advantage. Does that idea and these data maybe discourage you from looking, for example, at therapies specifically targeting FLIT3? The FLIT3 story has been going on for a while. I was a fellow when we first started looking at FLIT3 inhibitors in these diseases, and we got very excited about it. And the initial monotherapy study showed a reduction in BLAST percentage, but actually not even any definable international working group responses. So yeah, I'm discouraged, but you keep seeing this signal and you wonder if we combine enough of these agents, we'll be able to reset the clock from step nine to step five to step two, and then the body's native immune system might be able to take over from there. So I'm assuming that you're not ready to start thinking about serafinib off-label or in this situation? I've been resistant. You know, there have been some studies from the U.S., there have been some studies coming out of Europe looking at serafinib as a bridge to transplant, and that's typically how I've heard a lot of leukemia docs talk about this. I have a patient who has a FLT3 abnormality. I can get them into a remission with induction therapy. I don't know how durable that remission is going to be. Let me bridge them to transplant with serafinib and see if I can get them to transplant. Unfortunately, we don't have a lot of randomized data supporting the use of serafinib for FLT3 positive patients. How about abstract 2299 looking at azacitidine as post-remission therapy in older patients with AML? 
So another abstract that was presented out of Italy looked at azacitidine as post-remission therapy in older adults with AML and whether or not that can have an impact on what I would consider to be clinically significant endpoints, things like overall survival. And we can argue about whether disease-free survival is a clinically meaningful endpoint. This is a phase three randomized study for older adults, so patients over the age of 60 years, who attained a CR to conventional 7 plus 3 induction chemotherapy and consolidation therapy. The total of 54 patients, this is an interim look at these data, were then randomized to receiving azacitidine as maintenance therapy versus best supportive care. Patients to get onto the study had to have a performance status of less than three, and I think this is an important inclusion criterion. Anyone who's treated older adults with intensive induction chemotherapy knows that there's no way you're going to make someone look 70 more than by giving them intensive induction chemotherapy. In other words, someone can walk in looking like a 50-year-old, 70-year-old. They will always leave the hospital looking like a 70-year-old. So these folks had to have not only survived their induction chemotherapy, but survived it well to have a good performance status to then be randomized to receiving azacitidine versus best supportive care. Azacitidine was given at a lower dose than we're used to, 50 milligrams per meter squared for seven days every 28 days with increased dosing after the first cycle. This was then followed by cycles every 56 days for up to four years and for at least six months post patients achieving a remission. So in an interim analysis, 88 patients were initially included on the study. However, of those patients, 31 were excluded for either dying or having relapsed or refractory disease. When those numbers start to dwindle, it's really only a total of 28 patients who were randomized to receiving either azacitidine or best supportive care. Now, when you focus on those 28 patients, median observation time was less than a year. So this is pretty short follow-up at 42 weeks. 12 patients in the best supportive care arm had a recurrence of their AML compared to four patients in the azacitidine arm. The median disease-free survival in the best supportive care arm was shorter at 14 weeks compared to that observed in the azacitidine arm with a median not reached at two years, and that was a significant p-value. Median overall survival in the azacitidine arm had not been reached at two years, and it was 57 weeks in the best supportive care arm. So what I took out of this abstract, something that's provocative, something that a lot of people are doing off study, but with a very small number of patients and nothing that I would hang my hat on as being practice changing. I, for example, do not routinely put my patients on a hypomethylating agent such as azacitidine even if they're older and have a background of dysplasia in their bone marrow. We have yet to see a prospective randomized study with adequate follow-up telling us that this should be the new standard of care. So I'm curious what your thoughts were about abstract 118, a phase two study of ABT199, an agent we've been talking a lot about in lymphoma and CLL. I didn't even know it had been tested with AML. What did they see there? Well, luckily it's allowed in scientific research to beg, borrow, and steal from other malignancies to see if they'll work on your own, and sometimes we luck out. BCL2, as you mentioned, has been implicated in a lot of hematologic malignancies, particularly along lymphoid lines. It's also associated with drug resistance and poor prognosis in AML. And this is a BCL2 inhibitor. And this study was focused on relapsed refractory AML and those quote-unquote unfit for chemotherapy. Now, this is just a very controversial term for patients with acute myeloid leukemia. There have been a bunch of drugs that have tried to get approval by the FDA 
identifying what they call an unfit population. The problem and the death of those drugs was that a percentage of those patients after failing that drug would then go on to receive seven plus three chemotherapy, thus proving that they were in fact fit and questioning the eligibility criteria for those types of studies. That being said, I think the majority of patients enrolled on this study did have relapsed refractory disease. 32 patients were enrolled. The median age was 71. The youngest was 19. Oldest was 84. So again, you have a bit of a range, but tending towards older adults. Most of these patients, 94%, had relapsed in refractory disease. A small percentage of them had a history of a myeloproliferative neoplasm, and 37% had myelodysplastic syndrome in the background. Almost half of these patients had received three prior treatments. So you're starting to, again, see you know, a more heavily pre-treated group of patients who are exposed to this drug. 28 patients were available for response. One patient achieved a CR. Four had a CR with incomplete platelet recovery. So the overall response rate was a total of five patients out of the 28 available. Six of the patients had at least a 50% bone marrow blast reduction at their first assessment, and the investigators reported an overall response rate, those five patients, of 15.5%. So again, you're seeing a single agent, a unique mechanism of action. You're seeing a measurable overall response rate, and one that I trust, one that's defined by the International Working Group and provocative data for moving to a next phase study or considering combining this drug with traditional cytotoxic therapy. About abstract 979, looking at velocertib, this agent has a breakthrough designation with the FDA and AML. This is actually a basic science paper from our group, where under Jennifer Carew's guidance, investigators looked at velocertib in a panel of human AML cell lines and primary patient specimens. They had a couple of interesting findings. The first is that they were able to demonstrate activity regardless of the cytogenetic background of individual cell lines. So, you know, one of the issues that's come up before, if you think of middle-of-the-road therapy for older adults with AML, and Alan Burnett has published a lot on this with the standard being low-dose cytarabine. In his randomized study of low-dose cytarabine versus best supportive care, though, he really didn't see appreciable responses and certainly not durable responses in patients with complex cytogenetics. So that's the reason this is important here with a pololykinase inhibitor like velacertib, that you may see responses in these patients who previously didn't respond very well to low-dose aracy alone. The second aspect of this that's interesting is that the investigators were able to demonstrate that velacertib had activity in cytarabine-sensitive and in cytarabine-resistant AML cell line models. And in those models, the Velocitib retained its ability to diminish viability and stimulate apoptosis with a three-logfold increased cytarabine-resistant cell line. So in other words, you may have a drug that works in patients who are primarily refractory to cytarabine-based regimens, and you may have a drug that works in patients who have complex cytogenetics, and those really are two desperate populations in AML. So I wish we had more exciting papers on APL, but we did have abstract 12 looking at atra arsenic versus atra chemotherapy. Right. So this, and I will say, I do believe that this follow-up abstract is practice changing. And that's one of the reasons I would include it in my highlights in hematology from 2014. This was presented as a plenary at ASH a little over a year ago. It's the APL0406 study. It's a randomized intergroup trial conducted by the Italian Jamima 
group and the German SAL and AMLSG study groups, patients had to have lower-risk acute promyelocytic leukemia and be under the age of 70 and over the age of 18 to be enrolled. We define lower-risk APL as having a white count of 10,000 or less. So very easy to identify these patients rolling through the door. Patients were randomized to receiving arsenic and all transretinoic acid as the only two agents in their induction regimen. And this followed the MD Anderson protocol that was developed by Eli Esty. So they got arsenic at 0.15 milligrams per kilogram plus all transretinoic acid, 45 milligrams per meter squared daily until patients achieved a complete remission. Then they received arsenic five days per week for four weeks on and four weeks off for a total of four courses and all transretinoic acid two weeks on and two weeks off for a total of seven courses. Or patients were randomized to receiving an ATRA combined with chemotherapy. In this case, chemotherapy was idarubicin arm followed by more anthracycline exposure. So neither of these arms included any cytarabine. And the whole issue of including cytarabine in APL treatment continues to be somewhat controversial. Their primary study objective was event-free survival at two years of follow-up. Now, when they initially presented their plenary a year ago, they had two years of follow-up. And a lot of us saw the data and said, wow, that's provocative, but it's only two years follow-up. Let's wait and see what happens. Well, this is the let's wait and see what happens abstract. They now have three years of follow-up. CR, a complete remission, was achieved in 100% of patients on the ATRA and arsenic arm, 97% in the other arm. So those are identical four patients died in the ATRA and chemotherapy arm, and that's something that we teach our fellows. The CR rate for acute promyelocytic leukemia across the board is over 90%. Those patients who don't go into a CR die. There's no middle ground with APL, and that's what happened here. They now have a median follow-up of 36 months. The two-year event-free survival was 98% in the arsenic and ATRA arm versus 85% in the chemotherapy arm. And the two-year overall survival rate was 99% in the ATRA and arsenic arm versus 94% in the chemotherapy and ATRA arm. So based on, they now have a median follow-up of 36 months. Based on these data, we have made at Cleveland Clinic our standard for patients with lower-risk APL to give them ATRA and arsenic as induction and post-remission therapy to exclude chemotherapy altogether. But I'm curious, so you didn't make that change after last year's data? We debated it. We wanted to see a little more follow-up. We weren't convinced with just two years follow-up. Now that we have three years, we're pretty convinced, and we see these sort of survival numbers, we're pretty convinced. Can you refine down more how you define high risk as a patient not being able to receive this therapy? So by this study, they define it as a high risk would be a white count of over 10,000. There are other groups that also include a low platelet count in the definition of high risk. So other groups have said it, you know, it's a white count that you can debate whether that cut point should be 10,000, 8,000, or 6,000, but a low platelet count, meaning a platelet count of less than 40 or 50,000. Let's talk about MDS. And I thought the data presented in abstract 409, looking at lenalidomide in patients without DEL5Q was really interesting. Yeah, this was an important study. There was a phase two study of lenalidomide in lower-risk transfusion-dependent non-deletion 5Q MDS patients that was conducted in the U.S. and published a few years ago. It included over 200 patients and reported a transfusion-independence response rate of about 26%. So the question out there has been, okay, well, that was a single-arm phase two study. How would that hold up in a phase three trial? And this is the trial that Valeria Santini from Florence, Italy, presented. 
Same inclusion criteria to the previous phase two study where patients had to have lower risk transfusion dependent MDS. They were randomized two to one to receive lenalidomide at 10 milligrams daily or placebo. 239 patients were enrolled with the two to one randomization, as I mentioned. Median age was 71 years. So you're seeing that median age repeated again and again in these MDS studies. And the primary endpoint of red blood cell transfusion independence of 56 days or longer was 27% for those patients randomized to lenalidomide versus 2.5% for those patients randomized to placebo. In other words, background noise with a significant p-value. Isn't it interesting that the transfusion independent rate lasting 56 days or more was almost identical to that original phase two study? And that's something that really resonated with me. You don't often see these sort of response rates repeated when you go from the phase two to the phase three setting, and here you actually do. The incidence of AML progression was similar between the two arms. The durability of response is the one thing that wasn't quite as long in the phase two study. In the phase two study, the median duration of transfusion independence response was 41 weeks. Here it was 33 weeks for the lenalidomide arm. Then, you know, my take home from this is that it was proof of concept. It really did basically support what was seen in the phase two data. We'll see if it's enough for approval both in the EU and the US for this indication. So let's talk about some papers related to ALL, beginning with a paper out of the U.S. Intergroup looking at outcomes of older adolescents and young adults with ALL. Boy, this is one of the more exciting studies to come out of ALL in a while. Wendy Stock presented these data. This was a huge effort across the intergroup to basically answer a fundamental question that's been circulating for a few years. There have been retrospective studies that have reported that Adolescents and young adults, and this can be defined variably either as patients starting at age 16 and as old as 39 years in the ALL groups, whether these patients seem to do better when treated under pediatric protocols compared to adult protocols. So was it a question of different agents being used in the pediatric protocols? Or frankly, is it that adult oncologists are wimps? that we aren't as rigorous in keeping our patients on therapies, in not dose reducing, and we've seen that theme come up, as our pediatric colleagues. So this was meant to answer this. This was meant to say, okay, we're still going to have these patients treated by adults when they present to adults and treated by pediatric oncologists when they present to pediatric oncologists, but we're all going to treat them the same way and see if there's any difference. So these patients were treated actually under a children's oncology group regimen, but they were treated by adults through adult cooperative group. As I mentioned, age 16 to 39, 318 patients were enrolled from November of 2007 to August of 2012. 296 patients were available with a median age of 24 years in a range of 17 to 39. What this group reported, so we don't have a head-to-head comparison yet of similar aged patients treated by pediatricians as opposed to adult oncologists. But what we do have reported is that toxicities were similar to those reported in the standard arm of the children's oncology group protocol with an increase in thrombosis and hyperbilirubinemia for patients on this protocol. With a median follow-up of 28 months, the median event-free survival was almost 60 months, and the two-year event-free survival rate was 66%. The two-year overall survival rate was 78%, and obviously there's no median to that because it's you know two-year survival rate of 78%. So very high event-free survival rates, very high overall survival rates, 
predictors for worse outcome were patients over the age of 20, initial white count of over 30,000, and presence of minimal residual disease at day 28 following induction therapy, as well as a Philadelphia chromosome-like gene expression. The minimal residual disease aspect of this is important. This is more and more becoming the standard in ALL therapy, and that is to assess minimal residual disease after induction therapy and then make decisions about transplant or other therapies if patients do have minimal residual disease. And any overall sort of take from this study in terms of what it means globally? So our standard has now become in this age group of patients to treat them on this protocol. So anyone who walks into Cleveland Clinic to our adult group age 17 to 39 is receiving this regimen. We do think this has become the standard. We're impressed by the outcome so far with limited follow-up. And we are now, it is our standard to assess minimal residual disease in patients. How about abstract 382, another paper on CAR-T therapy in ALL? This has been such a hot topic for the past couple of years, this CAR-T therapy. And this is an interesting paper because it presents for the first time some longer-term follow-up in these patients. This is a phase one clinical trial in adults with relapsed or refractory ALL who underwent this therapy at Memorial Sloan Kettering. 24 patients have been treated. Median age of patients was 56 years, so there were young and old who were included on this. And 22 patients were valuable for a response. Now, 20 out of those 22 patients went into a complete remission after their infusion. That's remarkable. 90% of those patients, so 18 out of 20, achieved a minimal residual disease negative complete remission. And then 10 of 13 transplant-eligible patients actually underwent an allogeneic hematopoietic cell transplantation following this therapy. Now, with a median follow-up of 7.4 months, six patients remain disease-free beyond one year. Now, it's interesting. It depends on whether you're a glass-half-full or glass-half-empty kind of person. The authors say responses were durable, with six patients remaining disease-free beyond one year. I don't know if I would say that six patients out of 22 who were valuable remaining disease-free beyond a year is what I would call durable. So I'm curious to see where this therapy goes as a bridge to transplant. I think it probably has a role as an end unto itself. I think we'll still have to see. Any comments on toxicity? We've seen uh, cytokine release syndrome, but also neurologic symptoms. Yeah, so 9 out of 13 patients with morphologic disease at the time of the T-cell infusion developed this cytokine release syndrome. This is a drug, this is very complicated to give. This is the sort of approach that you have to give either on a bone marrow transplant unit with intensive care unit capacity or in an intensive care unit. And it's not that this is a foreign concept. Certainly patients who've received IL-2 therapy for other malignancies have had to go through this. So it's doable but it's not doable at every center. This is a pretty specialized boutique approach to lymphoid malignancies. So another paper in ALL was another paper looking at blenitumumab that we were talking about before. This is the BLAST study, single arm phase two study. Yeah, now blenitumumab is a bispecific T-cell engager antibody construct, and this was recently FDA approved for this indication. It's a clever strategy of giving a drug to kill leukemia cells, and it's actually a clever approach to doing it as well. So adults 
with B-cell ALL who were in hematologic remission. So in other words, what we would classically say is a remission for acute lymphoblastic leukemia after three or more intensive chemotherapy treatments, but who had minimal residual disease were eligible. And this is the population we discussed a little bit earlier with that intergroup protocol in the adolescent and young adult population. 116 patients were enrolled. The median age was 45 years, so these folks tended to be a little bit younger. 88 patients, or 78%, had a complete minimal residual disease response after one cycle of treatment with ablenitumumab. So very high response rate, but also very low burden of disease going into that response rate. Across all cycles, the minimal residual disease response rate was 80%. Patients could experience side effects to this. Adverse events occurring in 20% or more of patients included pyrexia, so fever in 88%, headache, tremor, chills, fatigue, and there is an infusion reaction associated with this drug. And as a result, our approach to giving this drug is to hospitalize patients for nine days, take them through an initial dose escalation, and then discharge them and give it as an outpatient. This is a continuous infusion over 28 days with FDA recommending changing the bag of infusion every 48 hours. So again, an intensive approach to treating acute lymphoblastic leukemia that really kind of requires a specialty center to do it and somebody who's going to live at least during this therapy close to that specialty center. Right now, exactly when and how is this drug used in ALL? Well, the FDA approval is based on those patients who have minimal residual disease, and it's to eliminate that minimal residual disease and focus on longer-term outcomes. It is being used in the relapse refractory setting. So let's finish out with a couple of papers looking at asparaginase and ALL1, looking at Erwinia asparaginase and other PEG asparaginase. And maybe you can also maybe just prep this by talking about basically what the different preparations are and how they are used. So the first study is a relatively small study that's out of Japan. The traditional asparaginase is E. coli-based, and a certain percentage of patients will develop a clinical allergy to that. And asparaginase is a pretty critical aspect of ALL treatment. So the question always arises, well, what do you do then if you have a patient who's allergic to that? And Erwinia asparaginase is non-cross-reactive with that allergy and represents another option. So um, this study was conducted in actually only 24 patients enrolled in a phase one slash two study over a two-year period. Median age of these patients was seven and a half years. This was a pediatric population. The range was ages two to 16. What the authors describe is that patients maintained their remission while they were receiving this drug. They all had to have had an allergy to the E. coli asparaginase before going on to this trial. They did not see any allergic reactions to the Erwinia asparaginase. They did see some hypertriglyceridemia in 50% of patients and some decrease in fibrinogen in 96% of patients. And these are kind of known side effects that go along with asparaginase treatment in general. They did not see any hemorrhage, thrombosis, pancreatitis, or death on this drug. So this is basically a study to show that patients who were treated on this did not have an allergy the way they did to the E. coli asparaginase, and that there were not any excess toxicities that you wouldn't have seen from E. coli asparaginase either. How about this paper looking at PEG asparaginase? Yeah, this is a retrospective study of patients treated with PEG asparaginase who are adults 
to look at this side effect profile of pegasparaginase. A lot of us have just switched over to pegasparaginase. It's much more convenient. It can be easily incorporated into ALL regimens. And this is to see whether or not there are really increased toxicities. 152 patients studied, age range of 18 to 60, so adults but not older adults. 30% of patients completed all scheduled six doses of the pegasparaginase. Um, The most common toxicity was hepatotoxicity, Hepatotoxicity was seen in 55% of patients with a bump in AST or ALT. Additionally, 24% of patients had a bump in their bilirubin. 11% of patients had thrombosis, and 51% of patients had hypertriglyceridemia. Fibrinogen dropping occurred in 47% of patients. So very similar to actually what we just heard from the Irwinia asparaginase. The pegasparaginase appeared to have a similar toxicity spectrum, as the non-pegylated asparaginase and as seen in pediatric patients, and the authors felt repeated doses could be safely administered despite the hepatotoxicity that was seen, so they continued to give it despite the hepatotoxicity.